Well, good morning. Um, Grant, Pastor Grant, asked me to preach this morning, um, and I love him, so I said yes. Uh, um, I haven't preached in over five years, so be patient with me. Um, the good news is that I can blame Grant for anything that goes wrong today, right? Uh, but in all seriousness, <laughs> thanks, Gary. Uh, it is my privilege to stand up here and uh, talk about the Word of God with you guys. Um, I do love this church, and I uh, hope this is edifying for you. He asked me to pick a topic. And as we're going through Romans 5, he, uh, I just wrote down on the side of my uh, Bible to do a word study on hope. And uh, so I thought, well, yeah, I guess I'll preach on hope. Uh, and so he said, okay. Um, and as I've been thinking about it the past few weeks, I've come to the conclusion that hope, Christian hope, is the high-octane fuel that we need to persevere down here. Hope is the key to endurance, and it's also the key to godly love and joy. So what I'm going to be talking about will not be new to most of you. You get great teaching here. I know many of you personally are in your word often, um, but Peter said that it's good to remind each other of things. Uh, in a world where we're distracted constantly with things that are not of God, it's good to take time to just remind each other of things. So for some, this is just a loving reminder. But for those here who don't know Christian hope, I pray that you get a taste of the beauty of it. And crave it more and more. So let's pray and we'll dive in. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the promise that when we gather together in your name, you are here in the midst. You are the master builder. So, Lord, we ask that you come this morning. Open our eyes to see the glory of the hope that you have called us to. Give us strength and courage to display that hope to this world. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Recently, I was uh, watching some old Bulls versus Lakers basketball uh, when Michael Jordan was there. Best basketball ever, if you guys don't know that. Um, and they're in the finals, and the Bulls are just killing the Lakers. And uh, there's this moment in the game where everything kind of just falls into place, and all the players are like, working together as a living organism 
and they're not thinking about basketball or the rules of basketball or anything. It's just they're just operating as a living. I mean, it just looks like a living organism together, you know. It's beautiful. And at the climax of it, Jordan gets the ball, and he goes up for a dunk. In mid-dunk, he switches hands and goes to the left-handed layup. Anybody remember that? Just a few of you? Okay, well, so I'm re-watching this, and it hits me as I see everybody in the stadium stand to their feet. I mean, even people that are for the Lakers are just amazed at what they just saw. Even Jordan, when he lands, he's like, what was that? You know, like the coaches are like, the, the other players are just shaking their heads. Like they pull out the decibel reader and it's off the charts. I mean, they're like, it doesn't even get this loud during rock concerts. People are standing on their feet praising what they just saw. And it dawned on me that that's what we're made for. What are, they, what are they seeing there? They're seeing glory. That's what they're seeing. And we're made for that. We're wired for that. Everything in us, we want to taste it. We want to experience it. We want to see it. We want to rejoice in it. We want to praise it. That's what we're made for. So I believe that's like innately inside of us. I mean, if you would ask me as a seven-year-old what I was going to do when I get older, I would have said, I'm going to be a pro basketball player or cure cancer or at least be president of the United States. <laughs> I knew in my heart that I was made for glory. Does anybody resonate with us? Somewhere along the line from 7 to 40, um, I was convinced that I'm not going to be the next Michael Jordan. Or the president, for that matter. So, uh, Some dreams are crushed, but life goes on. But even though those dreams are crushed we, sh- crushed, we should never forget that we are specifically designed for glory. What I found over time is that we're not designed for the glory of man, but we are designed for the glory of God. Our hearts are never satisfied with kudos from man. They do give you a buzz. They get you high for a week or two, or a year maybe even, if it was from the right person. But then you get crashed back down, and you're searching for that next glory. There are many men with credentials, honor, fame, Money, power, prestige, and they are empty inside. There are massive drug abuse problems and suicide rates that are not cured by the glory of man. The Betty Ford Clinic is evidence of that, along with many celebrities. I mean, this happens all the time. That live for the glory of men and even attain it. Yet there's something profoundly missing in their lives. 
Solomon told us that there's nothing here that satisfies this human longing. But there is another glory. There's a glory that completely satisfies the human heart. And one day, when we hear the words, Well done, good and faithful servant. Or we experience God singing over us gladly, like Zephaniah talks about. That's the kind of glory Christians are looking for. So scripture talks about this glory. And if we allow our hearts to be penetrated by truth, we start to see the glories and hope in them over all things. Now, when I'm talking about hope, I need to be clear. Definitions do matter, especially in a culture like ours where definitions change almost daily. So when I'm talking about hope, I do not mean it the way we use it flippantly. Like, I hope it doesn't rain this weekend. Or I hope I get to go to the party, right? Biblically speaking, faith and hope are intertwined. They are often used interchangeably in many texts. I would like to assert that the Bible teaches that the belief, belief in general, is faith. Okay? Follow, follow here with me on these definitions. I know definitions are fun. Christian faith is believing the truth of the Bible. That from beginning to end, it's true. God created everything. Jesus died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. He's on the throne. He's coming back. That we believe in those things is called faith. It's what the Bible calls faith. But it is a little bit more nuanced than that. It is not just an intellectual agreement that those things have happened. The devil believes all of those things. Catch that? He believes all of those things. So what exactly am I talking about when I say that hope and faith are intertwined? Hebrews 11 defines faith for us. So I'm not making this up. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. So within the biblical faith is the category of hope. You hear that? And in that, it goes on to say that without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, faith, and that he rewards those who seek him, hope. You see those two there? So faith is the general belief in the all-encompassing truth, past, present, and future. Hope is the future-looking expectation of the glory of God. Hope is a longing for the reward of God, for the presence of God here on earth. That is something the devil does not have. 
And it's the defining characteristic of true biblical faith. Romans 8 says, in hope, in hope we have been saved. I believe that faith, hope, and love are so intricately connected that if we can start to see them more clearly, we will experience God more fully. That's my prayer for this church. Not only that we will experience God, but magnify him here. That in the world that we live in, with all the schemes of the enemy, that we not only defeat him because of our hope, but that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So the text I want to reference is 1 Corinthians 2, 9 through 16. This text gets me excited (laughs) because it starts with, as it is written, no eye has seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the imaginations of men what God has in store for those who love him. I'm a, I imagine a lot of stuff. I mean, when I was driving here and seeing the yellow fields of where, they, where the corn is, you know, and the yellow just comes up there and it's so beautiful, it's so beautiful. I just imagine just running through that field. And I'm like, and then I look at myself and I'm like, and I can't do that. But how much fun, how much fun that would be, right? <laughs> Whatever, you know. All, all of your imaginations, God is going to beat them, you know. So this, this is an exciting text for me. Um, and then he goes on to say there, we impart words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. But we have been given the spirit from God. Right? So we can, and I'm going to ask you to do this today. Put on your spiritual spectacles. So that we can see the hope that he has called us to. In Ephesians, Paul is addressing believers there, the the believers in Ephesus. And he says that he prays that the eyes of their hearts will be opened to see the hope to which they've been called. And these are believers that he's talking to. So my assumption there is that I can be pretty sure that we can always see more clearly. Right? We're, we never make it to like, oh yeah, I see everything just perfectly clear. God's praying for believers to open the eyes of their hearts. So that's been my prayer for us in this. Um, and I hope we can see it more clearly today. So we are defined by a hope that no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered into the imaginations of men. 
uh, use this as a little bit of a permission to imagine things. Undergirded with Scripture, right? We don't want to stray from what the Word teaches. But I do use it to, to meditate on these things. So to meditate on the things of heaven instead of the things of earth. When we do that, when we get our mind out of the news and games and everything that's going on in this world, and we're able to focus our mind on the things of heaven, I believe that liberates us to rejoice in the hope that we're talking about here and live lives of sacrificial love. The Bible teaches that the more our minds are set on things above, the things of the Spirit, we start to see the glory of God more clearly. And the glories of this world start to become dim to us. Actually, after Paul had seen all the glories he had seen, which were massive. If you look at Paul, look at him, I mean, on the road to Damascus, he saw that glory, right? I mean called up to the third heaven, all kinds of stuff. Uh, At the end of the day, he said, I am crucified to the world, and the world is crucified to me. So he's seeing these glories that are coming at him, and he's saying, this world looks like a rotting corpse hanging on a tree to me. That's how glorious is our future. The more our eyes are opened to our future glory, the temporary things become less and less attractive, and they stop stealing our affections away from our true hope. So I want to ponder a few of these glories that the Bible discusses. Feel free to use your imagination as we talk about them, and The better your imagination, go there, because I want it to be better than that. And that's his promise. In Isaiah 6, there are these creatures called seraphim, which literally mean the burning ones. And it says that they're in heaven before God, and... I picture these things as massive stars. I mean, anybody familiar with the star Beetlejuice? They're just massive beings, right? Burning, fire, passion, burning, standing in the presence of God, and all they can do is shout out, holy, holy, holy. Paul said that he was called up to the paradise and he heard things that would be unlawful for him to speak here. As if the glories there, like our mortal bodies couldn't take it, what God has in store for us. He actually later says to accommodate those glories, we're going to be given new resurrected bodies. In 1 Corinthians 15, he compares the resurrected bodies from the earthly bodies, and in that, he describes our resurrected bodies to the glories of the Son 
and the stars and the moon. I'm looking forward to that day. This body is uh, not getting any better here. (laughs) Back on earth, Jesus said, Behold, I'm making all things new. All things. If your mind can't imagine that, I mean, it's pretty free reign there. All things. Combining earth and heaven, John says in Revelation 21 that he saw a new heaven and a new earth. The first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. That's a reference to the glory of marriage there, which is coming up for Brother Rob. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be them with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. He continues to go on to describe this new Jerusalem coming down from heaven, having the glory of God filling it. And he describes it, and he says that an angel measures it, and the length, width, and depth of it are 12,000 stadia. I have no idea what that is, so I looked it up. It's roughly 1,300 miles cubed. One city from New York to Wichita, Kansas. From Canadian border to the Mexican border and just as tall. Full of the glory of God. Isaiah said that the lion and the lamb will lay down together there. No more pain, no more war, no more pandemics, no more sickness, no more hate, no more death. There will be complete peace and harmony in our future glory. And these are just a few references of the coming glory that we're hoping in. You can pick out the promises of God and use your imagination all day long to meditate on these things. Look outside at creation. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. The sunsets, the beaches, the mountains, the trees, the stars. All the variety of the animals. Sunsets are my wife's favorite. He says that the clouds are the work of his fingers. The creativity and beauty of the art of our creator manifested on this earth are just hints at the glory of the new earth that are heading our way. Just hints. But these glories are not cheaply 
purchased. They're not cheaply purchased by God, and they're not cheaply inherited by us. If we truly are hoping in these future promises, our lives will be filled with sacrificial love, just like our Lord's. He says in Romans 8, that we will be glorified with him, provided that we suffer with him. I don't bring this up to crush all of your good feelings about our future joy and the glory of it, but to bring us to reality where God is present. He is reality, and we are here. We're not there yet. We live in the here and now, and the path to get there is full of trials. And I want us to be a different people that can rejoice in our suffering, like Romans 5 says. Or count it all joy when we are faced with various trials, like James says. I believe that we are in an opportune time in history where we can magnify the glory of God in the midst of the suffering here. So how does that happen? I want to turn to aligning our lives with the hope of glory that God has purchased for us. Aligning, like we come into alignment with it, which is the same thing as repentance. We're just turning to something, right? To align ourselves to what we hope in is not a foreign thing to us. We do it all the time. If I wasn't assured in my future paycheck, which is currently unseen, but will be seen in two weeks, hopefully, (laughs) but I have a full conviction about that. So I sacrifice my time, my energy, my attitudes, my talents to go to that job. I wouldn't do that if I wasn't fully convicted in my heart that I'm going to get paid, right? I mean, I do that every day. A lot of times I wake up and I'm not, and I don't have a good attitude about it, and i got to change. We naturally align our lives with what we hope in all the time. We hope in a spouse. So we put our best foot forward, and trick someone into marrying our crazy selves. Because <laughs> we hope that it'll be better, right? We hope in our kids that when they grow, they'll create a legacy of pride for us. We hope in our careers, college educations, our economy, our presidents, our votes, our money. And this is not wishful thinking. We actually align our lives to these things. We live out what we are hoping in. If we can spiritually see the hope to which we've been called, 
the glories that God has given us, it liberates us from not hoping in these transient things here. This is not a knock on the beauties of the things here. Marriage is a beautiful thing. Kids, beautiful inheritance, right? I mean, this, it's not a knock on these things. But it is my persuasion that if we can turn from hoping in our spouse, hoping in our children, ourselves, we're actually liberated to love them the way God loves Do yourself a favor and stop hoping in yourself. You can't fix this sin-sick world. I can't even fix my car. You know? Like, I can't fix the fact of the futility that we're living under here. I can't fix it. Your wife can't fix it. Your kids can't fix it. Your husband can't fix it either, by the way, wives. When we put our hope in these things down here, these little heroes, these little saviors, we're always disappointed. So we're just hurt and we're disappointed. And it puts so much pressure on the person that you love to be that. And they can't ever do it. So just do yourself a favor and stop hoping in these things. And hope in what God has called us to. Christ never disappoints. He never fails. Our hope is on solid ground with him. But aligning our lives with the hope of Christ does not simply equal great relationships, great careers, great children, great finances. And this is often how God's glory and man's glory differ. So how does hope play out in these things? The road to God's glory is a long and painful road. Could God fix everything today? Could he wipe away all of our tears, take away pain and suffering and everything today? Yeah, he absolutely could, right? But that would be man's way of attaining glory. Through power, through might, through force. God shows his greatest glories through grace, forgiveness, humility, and long-suffering. When Jesus was getting arrested, he said to Peter, do you not know that I could call down 12 legions of angels? How many is in a legion? Do you know off the top of your head? 
thousand, somebody said. That's a lot of angels. And that would have been glorious, right? To see 12,000 angels coming, descending down to stop the murder of the Son of God. Glory. One angel in the book of Kings somewhere, one angel wiped out 180,000 trained soldiers in one night. He has 12,000 at his beck and call. And instead of that glory being displayed, he chooses to go to the cross. My only conclusion to this is that God is so devoted to his glory and us seeing it that he is willing to suffer at great cost to himself that his glory may be displayed fully. We could have just seen the glory of his might had he called down the angels. But you would have never seen the glory of forgiveness, the glory of mercy. He wants us to experience his glory the most deeply. God never settled for plan B. This right here, right now, is plan A. I know that's potentially a controversial statement. So if you have a problem with it, take it up with Grant. <laughs> but to see what I, what I believe is true in that, we really need to put on our spiritual glasses. It is my conviction and hope that God is using all of this down here, all that is seen here, to display the full spectrum of the beauty of his majesty. That without which, we would not be able to taste and see specific glories. Some of these are easy to spot. The glory of a sunset, the glory of the mountains, the ocean, a smile on your child's face. These are all showing us aspects of the glory of God. But what about the atrocities here? What about the evil here? Why does God allow such evil when he can simply show his power by doing away with it all in the blink of an eye? I believe it's because we were created for infinite glory, not temporary glory, not the glory of man. And God is not willing to settle for a secondary glory. He wants to display infinite glory.
just like an Olympian, will sacrifice time, food, everything, right? Olympians are crazy in what they sacrifice because their eye is on the prize. And we must sacrifice as well. We could not have tasted the sweetness of grace. Does anybody here love grace? I'm a grace case, man. I love grace. If I had never been in a position to have needed grace, I would have been missing out on that glory that comes from God, and I would never have been able to praise Him forever and ever because of it. Ecclesiastes tells us that there's a time for everything under the sun, and that everything under the sun is fleeting, temporary, meaningless. And under the sun, that is correct. But when you set your mind on things in heaven, set your mind on things above, we can start to see how God flips these meaningless atrocities and horrible things on their heads and turns them into something beautiful. As a matter of fact, I believe that God will take everything that happens here and make it beautiful in his time. That we will praise him for every hard thing that has come here. Even the most horrific things. That statement is a hard one to swallow. I've seen some terrible things in my life. And I'm not naive about my future here. So how can I say that? The reason why I say that is the living hope that is in me. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I've experienced a taste of it in Christ. In Christ, God took the most horrific thing imaginable. The murder of the Son of God. And turned it into the most treasured and precious reality that has or ever will exist. If he did that with the death of his own son, how will he not make all of your lesser hardships glorious? That's the game changer for me. So remember that when you're faced with trials and suffering, that God in that moment, in the moment of that trial, he is working in that. 
He's preparing you to see more clearly his glory. In the hardship of marriage or kids, God is working there. In the hardship of money struggles or persecution, God is working there. In the hardship of suffering, In death, God is working. He loves you, and he wants the best for you. And we can hope in him. He calls us to work in those things as well. To be lights when the hard things come. Just read the Sermon on the Mount another sermon. I couldn't go through all of it because that would be a really long sermon. Jesus covered it pretty well. But I also know that it's hard to not look at what is seen, what is happening right in front of our faces when sickness or suffering enter our lives. When suffering enters our life, it takes front stage. When we lose our jobs, our reputations, someone slanders us. When we watch a loved one pass, it's hard to hope in the glory that God is producing there. It's hard. The temporal things are very loud at times and can steal our attention and affection away from our true hope. But I do not want to be swayed away from our hope by despair in suffering. Despair is our enemy there. We do not grieve as those who have no hope. But this requires strength to see. Strength to see. So, where do we find the strength? Romans 16 says that we are strengthened by the preaching of Jesus Christ. We're strengthened by the preaching of Jesus Christ. So I want to go one more place. We need to look to Jesus as the author and perfecter of our faith. He saw through the hardship of the cross. And he used the eyes of hope to see through it. That's what I want us to get today. When you're faced with the hardship and it's loud right in front of you, how to spiritually discern and look through the hardship to the glory that God is creating there. That's called hope. In Hebrews 12, it says, for the joy set before him, hope, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So he looked at the pain of the, he, he looked at the pain of the cross. When you see him in Gethsemane praying, you know he knows where he's going. He's looking at it, but he's not stopping there. He's looking through it. And he's looking 
at the glory that stands before him. And that is what fueled him to endure the cross and fulfill his love for us. Hope was the fuel there. So let's look at him briefly. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He's the radiance of the glory of God. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I love that one. He upholds this place by his word. He was betrayed, beaten, and killed in our place. He was raised for our justification. He destroyed the one who had the power of death. He delivered us from the bondage of fear. He is our merciful high priest. He is the resurrection and the life. He is our refuge in our hiding place. He comforts those who mourn. He gives grace to the humble. He is the lion and the lamb. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And he's coming again for us. So when we're faced with various trials, we hope in him. He is our anchor in the storm. He is our provider, our refuge, our strength, and our God. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He is the true hero. He's the true savior. He is our all in all. Let's pray.